Welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast, a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance. We interview leading scholars from a diverse array of backgrounds and ideologies about the principles that underlie free speech in academia. Now here's the host of today's episode, Keith Whittington. Thank you for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast for the latest installment in our regular series of conversations hosted by the Academic Freedom Alliance on issues of campus free speech and academic freedom. I'm Keith Whittington, William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University and the chair of the Academic Committee of the Academic Freedom Alliance. The Academic Freedom Alliance is a group of professors from across the ideological spectrum organized to defend the principles of academic freedom in American universities and to assist individual professors whose rights of free speech are under threat. You can find out more about the organization and its mission by visiting our website at academicfreedom.org. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by two guests to discuss the state of academic freedom at the University of Florida. The University of Florida was recently at the center of a firestorm of protest as a result of the university administration denying the request of a group of professors to serve as expert witnesses in a case that had been filed against the state of Florida. The request was denied under the university's recently revised conflict of interest policy for outside activities by faculty and testifying on behalf of of a litigant against the state was seen as in conflict with the best interests of the university. The Academic Freedom Alliance sent two public letters to the leadership of the university expressing our concerns with this decision. Many other groups uh, did as well. Uh, the university subsequently allowed the professors to testify and again revised its policy. The Faculty Senate at the University of Florida formed an ad hoc committee on academic freedom, and that committee issued a detailed report in early December 2021. I'm joined by the chair of that committee, uh, Raymond Issa, a distinguished professor in the School of Construction Management, and by a member of the committee, uh, Dania Wright, the T. Terrell Sesum and Gerald Sohn Professor of Constitutional Law in the College of Law at the University of Florida. Thank you both for joining us um, and welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast. And I guess I should also note that we will um, include a link uh, to the report in its entirety um, in the show notes. I certainly encourage listeners um, to take a look at that um, report and the details um, that are included uh, there. Um, This is a committee formed by the Faculty Senate at the University of Florida. Can you tell us a little bit about about the Faculty Senate there Um, how it's constituted, how active it is on these academic freedom issues. What's the relationship between the Senate and the administration um, ultimately? So the Faculty Senate at at the University of Florida has been um, pretty active for about the last 20 years. I think prior to that, it was a very um, modest body that simply kind of uh, rubber stamped decisions from the administration. But once uh, we had a change in central administration, the Senate became uh, more active. There's 150 members that represent all of the colleges and other academic units, and they an elected chair, as would be typical with most with most faculty senates. Um, and uh, what early in the process, back in the early 2000s, we spent a lot of time on the Senate, encouraging each of the academic units to acquire uh, or develop for themselves um, their own sort of. Uh, constitutions and shared governance policies uh, to try to promote more shared governance in within each unit. And I think that has been successful to a large extent, though not to not entirely consistently across the campus. Yeah, interesting. Um, I should also note, um, uh, which is 
uh, fairly distinctive uh, to your situation um, that a key document at issue in the recent controversy was a provision of the collective bargaining agreement um, that related to um, academic freedom. Um, the University of Florida seemed a bit unusual in having its major policy statement relating to academic freedom uh, laid out in, the C in a CBA instead of in other governing documents for the university more generally. Um, can you tell me a bit about the University Faculty of Florida um, uh, which is the uh, union that negotiates the uh, collective bargaining agreement and its relationship to the university and the university uh, faculty. Uh, Raymond? Uh, so the university has two types of faculty, faculty covered by the collective bargaining agreement and their faculty not covered by the collective bargaining agreement, mostly the professional faculty, law, the uh, medical school, vet med, and uh, related units, dental and all that. And so they have a separate uh, process. Mm -hmm. And I happen to be the chair of the uh, academic freedom uh, tenure professionals responsibility and standards committee. And we deal with their complaint. And then there's a the faculty union that deals with complaints from the faculty and, and, the, and the, covered by the collective bargaining agreement. Uh-huh, I see. Um, and ultimately, though, there's not, there's not a tension that you see between the academic freedom policy laid out and the collective bargaining agreement and what would apply to the faculty more generally in the university. This seems, that one statement seems to be sort of the central document everyone is referring to at Florida um, that sort of governs university practice broadly. Actually, right. oh, I, sorry, I was gonna say, I think there's actually quite a difference. Mm -hmm. um, the regulations that govern everybody um, state things like we respect academic freedom, right. we we you know we honor it. Uh, it's it's a bedrock principle of of an institution of higher of higher learning. The collective bargaining agreement actually imposes on the university the, the affirmative obligation to protect its faculty from outside censorship and outside influence, um, outside pressures. And that is not present in the university regulations themselves. Um, and so that may be uh, one, what do I want to say, let me go back. In the past, back around, I don't know, I want to say 2004 maybe, the, the higher education was redesigned in Florida. And prior to that, um, the United Faculty of Florida bargained collectively with the Board of Regents. And so it applied to all of the universities. When the system got changed and we, and we got individual boards of trustees, each board of trustees had to negotiate independently with the union. And there was a real attempt at the University of Florida around the time I was faculty senate chair to um, basically get the union out of the University of Florida. They weren't that concerned with the union in the other universities, but the University of Florida was getting a lot of pressure to, um, to, to somehow either vote it out. They, they, the university administration did quite a number of uh, sort of illegal labor practices that were that, to try to defeat the union. Um, at one point, they just unilaterally added the medical faculty and the law faculty to the collective bargaining unit um, with the hopes that maybe we would vote Right. Um, so we ended up at the law school filing a lawsuit to prevent that, saying that you are 
um, you know, you can't just unilaterally decide to put us in the collective bargaining unit. Right. So there was a lot of effort in the early 2000s to, to, to defeat the union here. And then it was many years, I mean, I, I, years to try to get a, uh, an agreement. And when we finally got that agreement, uh, I noticed for the first time, having looked at it for, the, for this report, a real difference between the rights of faculty within unit and rights of faculty out of unit with regard to this obligation of the university to right. protect faculty. Is your sense that universities actually leverage that distinction or has that not actually been significant in practice? I don't think it's been significant in practice. Not, not that I've seen. Right, right. Although it is, as you say, it is a strongly worded statement, more strongly worded than some of the other documents the University of Florida uses. And it might, might be nice ultimately to try to migrate that language over right. into other university documents uh, if, you, if you can. Uh, I assume the faculty senate though, as it's currently structured, for example, has no policy making power in itself. It's not, doesn't sound like that's how you described it. So the faculty senate could not itself alter uh, the governing documents of the university, for example, on these academic freedom issues. Ultimately, that's a decision that has to be made by who at the University of Florida, the, the president of the administration? Is there a body that makes those decisions? So uh, it's much, it's, it's more complicated, of course. So yeah. the constitution uh -huh. and the bylaws, so there's the constitution of the University of Florida and the Senate does have the power to change the constitution. Mm -hmm. um, then there's the bylaws that the Senate which are the bylaws of the Senate itself. And so, so the Senate can change the bylaws, but that's really about things like how you operate right. meetings and things. And then there are regulations and the regulations are the things that are approved by the board of trustees. Uh -huh. Those the Senate is, is sometimes given information about, but sometimes we're not even informed when regulations change. Um, but we have no um, authority to stop or veto or bless or anything with regard to the regulations. Right. So if you actually wanted to alter the university's own policy um, uh, relating to academic freedom, it ultimately up to the board trustees then to, to issue a new regulation that would um, adopt different language than it currently has. I think that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, I see. Um, and, and obviously the board of trustees is just champing a bit to uh, do that uh, at, the, at the moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> So uh, the issue arising out of the uh, conflict of interest policy uh, came to public light, at least at the end of October uh, 2021. Your report came out just a few weeks um, later. Um, I'm impressed by how quickly you're able to put that together and the detail um, that you were able to uh, put into it, um, uh, while also obviously balancing all the usual stuff that uh, faculty are trying to balance uh, at the end of a semester. Um, so what was the charge to the ad hoc committee um, and how did your report uh, come about? Uh, Raymond? Okay, I'll read the charge to you. Sure. To be accurate. The charge to the, the, uh, chan, uh, the Senate chair sent out an email indicating the charge of the special ad hoc committee is to gather information and report back to the faculty of the Senate on UF practices that reportedly have restricted the ability of UF faculty to engage in outside activities that are normally accepted as appropriate scholarly activities of university faculty. This includes, but it's not limited to expert witness engagement, writing of op-ed pieces and consulting. I, the faculty chair, David Bloom, would like our committee to consider outside activities of faculty in a broader context to reflect the range of concerns I'm hearing from faculty across the campus. The overall goal would be to collect data on the scope of the problem and to establish a view of any problems or inconsistencies that exist. By the way, 
the faculty senate chair just today extended the committee's life for two more months so we can collect any reports by faculty since now the report is out any other uh, incidents they have experienced mm -hmm. and added to the report as an addendum. Right. So the next two months, you're still working under the same charge. This is primarily yes. a fact finding yes. charge still. Right. And is there a plan, although there's lots of great information in the report that can lead to some policy reforms or particular policy language, is there a particular plan at this stage to try to develop a, a model um, policy that you would hope the university uh, would adopt? Or is the focus gonna continue just to be, uh, let's lay on the table uh, what, what concerns um, the faculty have about the situation? Uh, Dana? Yeah, so the, the faculty Senate chair and the president uh, issued a, or I guess the Senate chair issued an email with the blessing of the president stating that a number of changes um, that had been recommended sort of somewhat through the grapevine, but also from the presidential task force, mm -hmm. that those would be applied more broadly, that, that um, a number of things would, would happen. But part of that um, agreement I, I won't say it's an agreement yet because that hasn't come down from a, on high yet, was to create a joint committee to actually mm -hmm. look into, do a deeper dive and make recommendations. So right now our committee is a fact-finding committee. It's been extended, but we have, we are hoping that there will be a, another committee. And obviously that committee needs to be a joint administration faculty committee. Right. Uh, in large part because I think the committee that the president um, appointed right after this all hit the hit the press was mostly an administrative committee. Yeah. Uh, and then the faculty senate committee was an entirely faculty committee. And now we're kind of hoping that we can bring those two groups together for a deeper dive. Right. Um, so I want to get into the details of some of the specific um, cases y'all uncovered, but let's start with the um, uh, top line. What do you take to be the principal findings um, of your investigation so far? I guess I should emphasize, uh, given that you're going to have another couple of months to uh, collect even more information. So there were the most significant issues uh, reported in, in this report are that the barriers to faculty, there were barriers to faculty research and publication restrictions related to participating in outside activities that allegedly challenge the political priorities of the executive branch of the state and pressure to alter syllabi and course content to avoid viewpoints unpopular among current elected state leaders. So these were the specific challenges reported to us. Yeah. And that's straight out of the executive summary of the report. Right. So I know the report, um, uh, it lays out some of these problems, um, uh, doesn't try to lay blame. Um, uh, so, but I, I like finding, yes. Yeah, so I'd like to ask though, whether you, you're inclined at this point to lay blame, given what you've seen of these problems. Um, who do you think is responsible for the deteriorating situation at University of Florida? Is it um, a set of particular actors? Is it the larger climate? Um, uh, or is it people inside the university, people outside the university? Um, uh, what do you think are, is primarily contributing to the situation? Um, I think that's a really complicated question, right? Yeah. And um, I'm not inclined to, I, I can't sort of point and say, oh, the governor's doing it, or right. the, the chairman of the board of trustees is doing this. There seems to be a... Uh, just a general uh, pressure coming from above, from pu public officials. Um, and my sort of response to this is, you know, the governor appoints all the members of the Board of Education. The Board of Education 
Um, and, and the governor appoints all the members of the board of regents. I'm sorry, the board of governors. Right. And the board of governors and the governor appoint the board of trustees. And the board of trustees appoints the president. So there's this, there is this uh, relationship between all of these people. They're all public officials. The president, the provost, the deans, they're all subject to the Florida Ethics Code because they're all treated as sort of part of the public official apparatus. Mm -hmm. I'm not willing to say it's any one person in that mix, though there have been further reports since our report came out, further evidence of some um, linkages between some of those um, parties. And I guess my other answer to this is um, there's you know, a, a lot of people are pressuring us to say, you know, yeah. who's doing this? Who's responsible? Where's the smoking gun? And I, and I want to say, I don't know that that matters, right, right? right? Because if there is pressure, if we can say it's coming from a particular office or a particular person, that's a problem, right? That, that, that's inappropriate and that needs to be addressed. If there is no pressure, as the governor has said, and as the chairman of the board of trustees has said, um, there really, if there is none of this, it, that it's all a collective hallucination on the part of the faculty, um, that's a problem as well, right? That's just as much a problem because um, that perception is also interfering and limiting our ability to do our job. So the remedy might be different right. depending on wh if, whether there really is pressure or there isn't pressure. Um, but, but I think at some level, it doesn't really matter because the faculty feel this and, and, are, and are reacting to it and are struggling under this, um, whatever it is, uh, right. and, and something needs to be done. And, and I, do put the, I do put the responsibility for doing something about it on, in the hands of the president. Yeah, and I know, of course, that y'all are very focused on, and the report obviously is, is supposed to be focused on the University of Florida situation um, itself. And um, and as you noted, the Florida has decentralized its system to some degree, separated out some of the governing uh, bodies. So the different universities and different campuses um, are um, uh, treated um, differently. Um, but do you have a sense about the extent to which these problems are unique to the University of Florida campus? And as a consequence, for example, might be a function of things that are going on specific to your campus and how much of this is a more uh, general issue on other uh, campuses on, at state universities at Florida and might then be a consequence of, of something bigger? So I um, spoke directly with a colleague of mine at the University of South Florida who's on the mm -hmm. faculty senate and that person told me that their faculty senate meeting last week was to spend a significant amount of time devoted to the issue of um, pressures on and incursions against academic freedom. So I think it's safe to say that it's probably a broader issue. Yeah, we'll find, and presumably we'll find out more if other, if other in, uh, universities wind up setting up similar kinds of committees to sort of dig into um, uh, what faculty are actually saying about what happened here. I mean, one of the things that's sort of striking about the Florida situation is once these uh, controversies start breaking into the news, um, suddenly more people came um, uh, to light who said, well, yeah, I also had a problem months ago uh, that no one knew about, um, and now we're going to uh, talk about it. So it's a little striking the extent to which um, there were a lot of things going on underneath the surface, um, uh, just sort of waiting to uh, uh, be exposed, but hadn't been exposed uh, yet. Yeah, Raymond, did you want to add something on that? Uh, yeah, that's the reason the committee's mission was extended for two more months yeah. to allow these other people to come out. And are you now sort of still getting sort of emails and whatnot of people reaching out to you saying? Well, the, uh, the news just went out today, so I'm yeah. sure 
by next week, we'll have some. Right. Um, so let me start with um, uh, what was, uh, at least initially, the center of the controversy, which is the conflict of interest uh, policy in particular. Um, um, although, correct me if I'm wrong about that being sort of the centerpiece of the, of the most recent controversy and really what uh, got the ball uh, rolling. Um, in October, um, three political science professors had their request to serve as expert witnesses in a voting rights lawsuit um, that had been filed against the state um, denied. Um, can you just lay out for us um, uh, what happened um, uh, with uh, that particular request um, uh, to testify as expert witnesses um, and uh, what the academic freedom problem here is exactly? So that was an interesting case. Um, and just a little bit of background is that we normally, if you were going to engage in that kind of outside activity, um, I, I should say normally, for, uh, up until the last four or five years, um, you filled out a piece of paper and you turned it in with your immediate supervisor. It, it maybe made it to the dean's office, depending on your college. And that was pretty much the end of it. Um, starting about four years ago, the university centralized this process and, and created this online disclosure. Uh, process. And so now there's multiple levels of review. And your immediate supervisor is your first level of review. And, um, and then it goes up to uh, the main administration to an office of the conflicts of interest, where you have a number of lawyers, um, as far as I can tell, who are making some of these mm -hmm. decisions. And then they farm it out if there are questions that are particularly relevant to particular kinds of, of um, you know, conflicts and to particular departments. And, and, and this whole process of moving everything online, at, at least in my college, raised a lot of red flags and a lot of concerns. Um, but, you know, it seemed to be running smoothly. And then, and then the policy would change and none of us heard about the policy. And then you put through your regular, you know, you'd go to put through your regular request. And now the form is different. You have to click different boxes. Um, you have to disclose additional information. Now we have to actually disclose and provide a copy of a contract mm. to the extent there's a contract that exists. That I don't know when that got added in. Um, now there's a dollar value amount that you're expected to, to disclose. Um, and so these professors doing what we've been doing for years now just put their request in to serve as an expert witness and it, to my knowledge, they were approved at the first level and then got denied at the second level in the administration with what I found to be a completely remarkable response on the part of the university saying, this is denied because, um, you know, it, it's believed that this, this activity would, uh, you know, conflicts with the interests of the executive branch of the state of Florida. I, I, I just, my jaw dropped when I saw that. Um, and so that, that is the first time I've seen that kind of response. Yeah, kind of remarkable. And the, the conflict of interest policy itself is written in fairly general language uh, or was uh, um, before its most recent revision, uh, written in fairly uh, general language. But, but this particular framing uh, that came out from the central administration um, about what the nature of the conflict of interest is um, was uh, kind of remarkably specific <laughs> about, about the nature of the conflict and, and kind of remarkable about conceptually as to um, uh, how it 
what it envisioned as being a conflict um, uh, with uh, the university's um, interest. Um, can you just play out a little bit what the what you take to be the sort of academic freedom issues with the university saying um, uh, testifying as an expert witness uh, in lawsuits against the uh, state of Florida, for example, um, uh, is is uh, in conflict with uh, the duties that a professor um, ought to be uh, performing in the state university. Uh, that's a really hard one, right? Because, yeah. I, you know, none of the, fa I don't think any of our faculty were given notice that this was suddenly a new criteria. Right. Um, but of course, you know, we've always been aware that we're in a state institution mm -hmm. and that, you know, you don't bite the hand that feeds you and you, um, you know, you, you kind of go along, you don't want to tick off Tallahassee. I get that. Um, but, the, but this very explicit response had never really happened before. Um, and I guess I, I found it, I find it completely just incomprehensible at some level, because I think about, imagine, imagine you are a plumber, you're Joe the plumber, right? And you uh, are a really good plumber. And there's a lawsuit about, you know, a building that was flooded because the plumbing was done ina inadequately. And, you know, you're asked to give testimony on what a competent plumber would do. Your employer would be thrilled, right? Your employer would be happy that you are represent, you know, that you, right. you are the, you're the gold standard of plumbers, right? Um, and so, and so this is a case where, oh, and, and let me go back. Like if, sure. if, obviously if the lawsuit was against the, your employer, or you are a party against your employer, that's a completely different, a different issue. And that's not what's going on here. Right. Um, although I think the university is trying to collapse those two. And, and that's where the real, the real problem is. Um, you know, and then I think, well, gosh, if, if I'm not Joe the plumber, I'm actually the plumbing professor, right? The gold standard plumbing professor at the University of Florida. And I'm being asked to give testimony on what quality plumbing is. The University of Florida should be thrilled that I'm out there representing what quality plumbing, you know, expressing what that is. Um, and so the but but, it, you know, obviously it does get a little more complicated if this were a lawsuit against your employer. Um, but if it's against your employer, you, you, you're not you're usually subpoenaed to testify. Right. You're the right. one who did the lousy plumbing or you're the whistleblower <laughs> on the plumbing case. Right. Um, you wouldn't, it, it, so, so you'd be subpoenaed for those to be that kind of witness. So the whole idea here that, um, you know, we're being with faculty at the University of Florida are, are experts and providing factual information to a court of law um, to determine whether a state statute is constitutional or not. Seems to me Florida should be thrilled to have their gold standard experts up there in the court of law. Right. Um, Right. It's it providing telling us what what I don't know, quality plumbing it looks like. So the whole the whole situation just kind of makes no sense to me. Yeah, it's a it's I mean, I don't I, I don't necessarily want to drag you into uh, broader conceptual questions if, if you don't want to go there. But it's um, uh, but but one of the things that really struck me about the uh, initial denial by the University of Florida and its explanation as to the denial is is the uh quite clear conflict i think with with how the american association of university professors for example has always understood the 
the foundation stone of academic freedom, which was the whole point of academic freedom was to protect the ability of faculty um, to serve the public interest by developing a kind of expertise um, that can then be shared to the public um, about things the public ought to be concerned with. Um, and, and, and for the university to assert um, that you can't share expertise that might be in the public's interest because it's in conflict with the current occupants of the executive branch of the government uh, seems rather troubling. <laughs> so as an understanding, as not only is it sort of troubling in terms of its understanding about sort of the nature of state institutions and the like, but 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 particularly and specifically troubling uh, for its understanding about what the purpose of academic freedom even is um, uh, for a professor at a state institution. No, I completely agree on this because I, you know the the university and, and or, sorry the the legislature, the governor, the boards they are all uh, working their tails off to give us resources to do our jobs. They are do they are going above and beyond to give us the resources to do our jobs, and we realize that that means at some point when the state of Florida needs us, we should roll up our sleeves and get to work and help solve the problems of the state of Florida. Right. right? That's that's what the give and take is about. We're giving you resources. You help us when we need it. So if we need a solution to for citrus greening or we need a solution for you know invasive shellfish or whatever the heck it right. is, that that's what the University of Florida faculty should do. So to have, um, to instead be told, don't do that. Don't say anything. No, you cannot put your expertise out there. No, you're not supposed to. Um, in, in any way, you know, state anything is really saying, don't do your job. Yeah. And part of what's interesting is for, from a, as a conceptual move, nothing about that seemed particularly tied to expert witnesses. And so, and so in this, in the bureaucratic details of how this controversy came about, um, you have a conflict of interest policy for paid work in particular, actually, is, is the conflict of interest policy even specific paid work? Because it's not specific paid work. So you have a conflict of interest policy for outside work, um, uh, broadly conceived, um, uh, that requires this kind of uh, pre-approval um, for faculty um, uh, to engage in it. But this explanation as to, as to what the nature of conflicts are between um, uh, faculty in the state would seem to apply not only this specific instance of thinking about serving as an expert witness in litigation against the state, but presumably would equally apply if a faculty member was asked to testify at a legislative hearing against a bill that the executive branch of the government favored, um, if, if a faculty member wrote an op-ed in the local paper um, about um, uh, policies that the governor um, had issued. It just strikes me as, ex it as extremely sweeping about what they conceptualize as being the sort of duties that faculty owed, um, uh, not just to the university, but even to the, the uh, incumbent government officials um, that is is quite broad. Um, is it, Raymond, do you have a sense about to what degree is, is there a limiting principle here in, in what the university has claimed so far um, about, um, well, expert witnesses are different um, or this particular situation is different um, that would lead you to think this doesn't apply or, or would lead them to be able to say um, this doesn't apply to a wide range of other situations where um, professors might wanna say things that, um, current politicians might not like. So the way I heard this couched is, at the end of the day, is the university an arm of the state mm -hmm. or not? And I don't think the faculty perceives the university as being an arm of the state. They're state supported, yes. Right. And that's the bottom line here. 
And how many people do you think do see it that way? So, so do you have, so certainly the faculty probably do not see it uh, as being an arm of the state um, as such. Is your sense that that's a, that's a common view among trust regents, among uh, the university leadership, among politicians in the state, um, or is that a relatively unusual view of thinking about um, the university as simply being an extension of the state apparatus itself? I have not seen where the, or perceived where it's common among other groups of the population, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously not also not something people talk about very much <laughs> until we, yeah. get into, we get into these kind of controversies and suddenly it becomes exposed as to how people are thinking about uh, these these relationships. And one of the interesting things about these controversies is they sort of force people to think through uh, how, what do you understand the state university to be and, and what should it be uh, doing? Um, but it is sort of an interesting claim of thinking about this, about universities as sort of a, as an extension of the state apparatus itself. And um, it would be a interesting questions to ask as to how many people um, in relevant leadership positions um, in Florida actually have that kind of conception of the nature. I of also would like to add that, you know, as the university keeps rising to being the top number one public research university, more and more people are going to come to the university faculty and ask them to, to be expert witnesses or testify at congressional committees and all that. And that goes to being at the top of the hierarchy. Right, I mean, in some ways, right, as said, so you should, should be proud be to be the best to stand at the top. Right, right, yeah, you, you would hope people would be coming to uh, the faculty at the University of Florida to ask them to provide um, ex right. expert advice. And sometimes uh, uh, good advice is not always going to uh, run in the same direction that the politicians might want it to run. Um, so in late November, the task force um, that you referred to that the president put together, uh, mostly consisting of high-level administrators uh, within, within the university, um, uh, issued a report regarding the conflict of interest policy with a number of policy recommendations. Um, it includes a recommendation that there is, um, as it said, a strong presumption um, that the faculty be allowed to serve as expert witnesses in their capacity as private citizens in suits against the state, um, but leaves open the possibility that presumption could be overcome uh, when there is a, quote, clear and convincing evidence um, that the testimony would, uh, quote, conflict with an important and particularized interest of the university. Um, how satisfied are you with this task force report and this proposed uh, language as to uh, what the conflict of interest policy ought to be uh, looking like going forward? So I think there is a, also an appeal, a two-level appeal process. Yeah. So that balances that. Uh, mm -hmm. So you have a first level and... That committee, I think, is consists of uh, half faculty and half administrators, and then there's a, a higher level, and that consists, I think, of three administrators and maybe the Senate president. Mm -hmm. So there is a process now. Before, there wasn't necessarily an appeals process. Yeah, the process is both more transparent and more robust than it was before, right. and, and, and has faculty involvement, which is important to you. And I think the faculty senate hopes that that appeal process applies to every application, not just expert witnesses. Sure. And, so and there's nothing in the process in, in, in the system. Right. And the task force report is is not specific to expert witnesses, including about this process. It tries to frame this more broadly as applying to the conflict of interest issue generally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you think about this language uh, conflicts with important and particularized interests of the university? And, and let me, I guess, in, in asking that about that specific language and the standard that the task force suggests um, ought to be used about uh, the conflict of interest policy. Um, 
quote some language uh, from the report because I, I was really struck by this sentence, which I thought was uh, particularly nice um, in summarizing uh, what an appropriate conflict of interest policy at a university um, ought to uh, be trying to do, at least um, even if the language isn't um, uh, qu quite enough to um, give us a, a clear standard the universities could say. So this sentence uh, comes from the report. Um, so long as a professor's outside activity does not interfere with the professor's time commitments, um, does not undermine the professor's objective search to acquire knowledge um, and represents an honest commitment to professional integrity, um, there would not seem to be um, a conflict. Um, I take it that you would think that that language is pointing in a different direction than um, important or particularized interest of the university, uh, but, but maybe they're on uh, there, they can be squared with one another. Um, uh, so um, how should we be thinking about um, a future conflict of interest policy? So I, I happen to like the second one you said. I think I might have written that. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think I like that one. Um, here's the problem, right? The all of our all of our regulations very clearly state that the conflict of interest is 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 internal to the faculty member. So you've got a duty of loyalty to the university. You've got a duty, presumably, to this outside activity. And if your duty to the outside activity is going to undermine or threaten the integrity of your work to the university and your loyalty mm -hmm. to the university, then you can't do it. There is nothing in there that says you have to consider the reputation of the university or the funding stream of the university or the political interests of the university. That is not the conflict of interest analysis, right. um, as our university regulations state them. But now you have a new Florida statute that recently came online that says that the university, you have to disclose contracts mm -hmm. that might, uh, I forget the exact language, but that might uh, affect the integrity of the university. Now, that's a really vague and broad term, the integrity of the university, because as, as Raymond just said, as we move up in the rankings, we want to be known as being a, a top research institution with experts all over the place. Um, and so it might even to promote that view of the university, we might actually need to back off and say, hey, you could spend two days of your rather than one day, 16 hours, rather than eight hours of your time spent in outside activities, because that's bolstering the reputation of the university. Right. Um, but it seems to be interpreted, that statute, to mean, um, are you, is your activity in any way challenging this singular monolithic voice of the university that is apparently being amplified by or one's being amplified by the other of the um, of the political branches of the state, and so while my expert advising or, or expert witnessing might result in losing funding because the state gets mad at the university, that I don't think is undermines the integrity of the university because the integrity of the university is about intellectual standards, and that is promoted by actually speaking the truth. Right. right. Um, and so it's a really bizarre kind of statute and we're not quite sure how to interpret it. It hasn't been litigated yet. It's, it's a very it's a big unknown right now. But I think the university is interpreting that to mean anything the faculty does that in any way conflicts with the, the perspectives or the interests of the political branches. 
And that's, I think, of an unnecessarily broad interpretation. Right, right. So in, in my opinion, all these rules were set up mainly as conflicts of commitment rules. You have to do your job. You can't be doing other things if you can't do your job. And now we're trying to interpret them as conflict of interest. Right. Because they all started off as conflict of commitment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting language. I mean, the, as I, the sentence I just quoted from the report emphasizes this question about um, interference with time commitment. Some university policies that touch on these issues are framed uh, explicitly as uh, conflicts of commitment um, policies. And they really are about sort of time commitments and making sure you're showing up for your classes um, and the like while you're doing your um, outside um, activities. Um, The conflict of interest language does start invoking something potentially uh, broader. And obviously in this context, University of Florida certainly has uh, uh, interpreted it to uh, uh, imply something much much broader about where, where, where the conflicts might lie. Um, ultimately. Um, one thing I was struck by with the report are, are, um, that, that y'all uh, put together was uh, reports to you um, about other kinds of um, concerns people had uh, beside, outside this particular context of these outside um, activities um, uh, policies. Um, a couple of them are specific and I wanted to um, highlight, but, but feel free to um, uh, jump in with, with others that came up um, to you as well. Um, one of them, which I had not sort of previously heard about until I until I read your report, was the case of um, a professor um, in the Department of Education um, who uh, was concerned with uh, modifying um, the doctoral requirements and adding a, another track to um, the curriculum um, in the doctoral program in the College of Education. And that track was going to focus on uh, critical studies and race, ethnicity, and culture um, in education. Um, and he reports that um, he ran into roadblocks while trying to uh, put that into uh, play. So can you say a little more about sort of what happened in the College of Education um, and what your understanding is of the, of the, of the situation there? Um, yeah, so uh, interestingly, that's under the collective bargaining agreement. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually a, the union is, is bringing this grievance uh, on the basis of this. But it is something that faculty teaching in areas of race, generally speaking, across campus have been experiencing is this kind of uh, double speak about, about critical race and, and race studies. So you have on the one hand, right after the, the protests um, around the George Floyd murders back in 2020, you had a real commitment coming out of the university to do things to try to improve the experience of our minority students and faculty and a real commitment to um, you know, engage this idea of anti-Black racism. And so we were told, you know, get this into, put these into your syllabi, get this work done. I do, you know, really engage these issues. Um, we had grants. I served on a, the, I, the, the team that was determining who was going to get university funding to study these issues and to, and to help foster a, an inclusive community. And then you do that. And then as, as your syllabus moves up the ladder, up the chain of command, um, you're told, oh, no, no, you need to take that out of your syllabus. Don't, nothing that looks like you're talking about race specifically or critical race by any means, that needs to be downplayed. So on the one hand, we're being told, play it up. On the other hand, we're being told, downplay it. And, and your syllabus has to go up to 
central administration to make sure it complies with a lot of our various new regulations on syllabi. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's what happened with this professor um, in the College of Education is he was doing what he thought everybody wanted him to do. Right. Um, and, then, and then suddenly this roadblock appears um, and it's very clearly articulated as uh, coming from a position that we don't want to um, right. We, the Board of Education has already adopted a policy that says you can't teach critical race theory in um, K through 12. Right. And legislation is being put in uh, right now as we speak to prevent it being taught at, in institutions of higher education. And so, you know, the university is saying, don't do it. Right. But it directly contradicts this, the message we got six months earlier that said, do it. Yeah, well, not only does it directly contradict what the university is, is sometimes saying is a real imperative and you, and you ought to be doing it, um, uh, but, but I was struck by sort of two features of that example in particular. One is um, this sort of question of chilling effects that we often wind up talking about in sort of a First Amendment free speech context where we worry about uh, not only the direct intervention um, that is censoring somebody or suppressing speech, but also what are the spillover effects on everybody else um, that's worried about the possibility um, the hammer is going to come down on them. And this seems to be one of these examples where um, uh, administrators are saying, uh, well, look, we want to shy away from these things, even though nobody's actually told us we can't do it yet. Um, uh, we don't nonetheless um, uh, want to uh, go out of our way um, uh, to avoid um, uh, raising the specter that somebody might actually uh, censor the speech more directly. And so it seems to be sort of a clear example of these kind of chilling effect problems, um, but I think is very disconcerting in, in an academic context and, and raise and real questions about academic freedom. The other thing that I was struck by with that example in particular is what I sometimes hear, especially people outside of the academic context, um, where they hear about these kind of expert witness um, uh, issues, for example, and think, well, you know, that's not really the professor's job anyway. And so, of course, the university doesn't really want people going out and and doing uh, outside work. And that's not really then much of a problem from an academic freedom uh, perspective. Um, It's not like they're affecting the curriculum or anything, uh, whereas this seems to go at the very heart of what it is uh, we ought to do. So, um, I, I think if we're, I think that kind of complaint is wrong about how to think about expert witnesses and the like. But even if you think that may be true, um, uh, there's there's no denying the question of uh, when you're trying to design what the curriculum looks like, and you're and now you're worried that there's political uh, meddling with the curriculum. Um, you've got a pretty straightforward academic freedom problem um, under those um, under those circumstances. Yeah, I now, think that's absolutely right. And, and your sense is that's that's this is not just an isolated incidence that occurred in this particular case, but your sense is this is happening more more broadly across the university. Yeah, if you uh, I don't know if you paid attention to the report that came out from the Center for the Study of Race and Race Relations, mm-hmm. it was included in the appendix. Um, but my colleague right. got one of those grants to um, to investigate these issues and come up with with sort of a path forward for how to deal with uh, making a more inclusive. Uh, university here and making it more conducive for our race scholars. And she reported widespread um, feeling of censorship and lack of support and fear on the part of many of the people doing race scholarship. Um, So this was not a a one-off incident by any means. Yeah, it was Appendix 2.0. (laughs) <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, that's the uh, report is included in the appendix and, um, and it's worth taking a look at because it goes into some detail on that particular issue. It, it also highlights 
um, uh, since I've been somewhat concerned about these uh, anti-critical race theory bills as they're sometimes framed, um, they're passing a lot of state legislatures. Um, Florida is not unusual in having one that was initially focused on K through 12 education. Florida is also not unusual in now increasingly thinking about how do we apply this to higher education as well, um, uh, which I think is, is, is quite troubling um, as these things uh, migrate. And this is an example of, of even the threat of, of such a bill um, and, and what it can do to um, how universities actually um, operate. Um, one of the other controversies um, um, or set of concerns that the report exposed um, is in the School of Medicine um, uh, on a, different, a completely different set of issues um, that arose um, there. Can you um, lay out a bit what, um, what you heard uh, coming out of the uh, School of Medicine, what the issues are? So um, I, I want to say it's not limited to the School of Medicine. Yeah. As soon as COVID hit, um, pretty much people in every college were doing research on COVID, but it's COVID research, yeah. COVID yeah. research generally. Um, and all of our, many, not all, many of our colleges have relationships, have partnerships with other state entities. So the Agricultural College has relationships with the Department of Agriculture, the Education Department with the College with the Department of Education, College of Medicine with Department of Health, Health and Health Professions, right? All, we, we have many, many, many partnerships. And, you know, when COVID hit, everybody was jumping on trying to get, trying, trying to help solve this problem. Right. Um, and, and we were doing, I think, a pretty good job of it, uh, recording the data and collecting the information and doing research. And uh, at some point this fall, uh, when, okay, well, anyway, at some point this fall, things, uh, there, there started to be hurdles, greater and greater hurdles to that, pub those publications coming out, seeing the light of day. And that's a real problem. If you are a professor and your promotion depends on, right. you know, getting your scholarship, getting your research out there, and it's sitting on someone's desk because right. it's being, you know, it, it's just, it's been tabled. We don't want that to see the light of day. So that I think is one of the most troubling, uh, you know, there's this allegation of, of destruction of COVID data. To, my, to our knowledge of the committee, no data was actually destroyed, but there was pressure to do so. Mm -hmm. um, but that's consistent with the, um, the fact that we're not reporting. The State Department of Health is not reporting COVID data um, very accurately anymore. And so, obviously that those were incredibly troubling to members of the committee and um, in, in some sense, I think really spurred our, our, our last weeks of week of work, getting that, getting the report out there and getting it to faculty um, because we felt that that, that clearly crossed a line right. um, in terms of interference with the academic mission of the institution. You know, it's like, it's very much like saying you can't teach um, evolution. Right, right. I feel like we're back at the, right, at the Scopes Monkey Trial in some sense. Yeah, it certainly goes to the very heart of what it is you're you're trying to uh, do. And, and, and although it's, it's, it, from the COVID perspective, this is primarily interfering with uh, research and scholarship, not, not necessarily the teaching side. Or do you think there are also um, implications that have been raised about how people have designed classes, what they've been uh, able to teach in classes and, and the like? Or is this, 
is uh, my impression, I guess, was this was primarily a scholarship and teach and, and scholarship and research issue, um, but but maybe it extends into the teaching side as well. Yeah, Raymond. Uh, yeah, so the vice president for research has set up a committee mm -hmm. to look into this research integrity issue, and we'll find out what they find out. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, so stay tuned for that. Hopefully we'll get more um, details as to what's going on there. Um, so um, are there other issues that, came, that have come up in the report so far? Obviously now you said you've got another couple of months to uh, do further investigation, maybe entirely new things are going to uh, come to the fore um, as, as you go, but are there other things that you think have come up um, or uh, that are in the report so far um, that you think we should have uh, taken note of and, and highlighted before we um, uh, sign off? Not really. <laughs> Raymond. Um, I do want to point out that an article came out just in the last couple of days, the Gainesville Sun, um, dealing with the COVID mask policy um, that was uh, that the university adopted. So as everybody, I think, on the show probably knows, there was a big um, there was a lot of tension between the governor and the Alachua County Public Schools Board of uh, School Board mm -hmm. on mask policies uh, at the beginning of the school year back in August. And UF, you know, we were we were engaged in the same kind of discussion, and our university experts were providing expertise to the school board mm -hmm. as to the efficacy of masks. Um, that expertise was, I believe, silenced at the university level. And there was, there are some sort of smoking gun texts in mm. that article between the chair of the, of the board of trustees and the president about why and how UF is going to adopt a, a no mask mandate, no requirements, no vaccine mandates, nothing. Even though the Supreme Court had upheld um, a vaccine mandate, I believe, for the Indiana University school system right, just right. like a month earlier. Yeah, um, yeah. And so the faculty Senate has voted a vote of no confidence in our, the, in that mask, in that COVID policy mm -hmm. as it was adopted in, in August. And I think that is, an, is another area where there was a lot of concern by faculty. Now, I don't know that I would call it necessarily academic freedom. Yeah. But it really has to do with our ability to do our jobs, right? So, so if we're being told you have to come into the classroom, but you have to offer a high flex option, pedagogically, pedagogically, I'm thinking this this is not good. There are right, there are right. good ways to teach, and there are not very good ways to teach. And I'm being put in a position where I have to teach in a way that I don't think is pedagogically sound in particular high flex. I just think high flex is, is a terrible way to teach because either the students in class or the students online are, are not getting your full attention. Mm -hmm. So either be online or be in person. I don't care which, but you know, do something. Um, it's sort of, that's my personal opinion. No, these but, hybrid models, I think everyone finds particularly difficult um, as to do both. Very bad, very bad. And then decisions were made about exam taking. Um, and a lot of those decisions did not consult faculty, did not determine whether pedagogically, they were pedagogically sound decisions. They seem to be made for other reasons. And so I think that's going to also be another area that may come out. Yeah, there's been a lot of central administration interventions in sort of 
how classes function that have come along in COVID. And of course, these things are all pitched as temporary measures responding to a specific thing, but they, um, uh, in, in some cases, raise real issues about sort of who, who ought to have the proper authority to make some of these kinds of determinations um, uh, that's, that's hard to separate out from, from core academic freedom concerns more, more generally. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's a nationwide. I think there are lots of issues here, and and, and it'll be very interesting to see how they play out in, in coming months and, and years. How much of this uh, leads to a retreat on the part of central administration, and and they abandon some of these interventions, or to what degree they continue trying to uh, micromanage testing uh, policies, for example, that the faculty might engage in. Um, so, where do you think the faculty at University of Florida go from here? So, you've got a, a charge to um, continue looking at this for a couple more months um, to collect more um, uh, more data. Um, what else do you think is on the agenda? What should the faculty be uh, thinking about at this point? I think we need to engage in a, a process of rebuilding the trust that was lost over the last couple of months. That's the first step. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and has the administration been um, actively reaching out to try to do that? I mean, obviously, in some ways, the task force itself was an effort to respond to the controversy. Um, I don't know how much um, um, outreach there's been on the, from, on the part of the president to faculty uh, leadership on these issues in order to try to rebuild some consultation and trust more generally, or, or is that uh, or is there a hard wall between the faculty and the administration such that they're consulting with deans, but not necessarily consulting with faculty? I think we need to concentrate on the lessons learned and see how we avoid the same mistakes. I think it was an unfortunate confluence of missteps and, and incompetent moves in the right. process that caused all this. Well, I, I like that optimistic tone uh, out of which, uh, which to end. Uh, hopefully, hopefully there are lessons uh, that are learned from this experience and um, hopefully that we, everyone can uh, wind up identifying what mistakes uh, were made and, and fix them so they don't get made again in the future. Yeah, that that's the reason we wake up every day, right? Optimism. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's what we all try for. Um, so thank you all very much. I really appreciate your um, uh, helping walk us through the situation at the University of Florida. It's an important situation. I think it has ramifications uh, for these issues uh, uh, nationwide, although I know some of the details there um, are particular to your, to your own institution. But uh, this has been a very um, helpful conversation. Um, please subscribe to the Academic Freedom Podcast uh, through your favorite platform uh, so that you don't miss an episode and rate us on iTunes, which will help others find our conversations on campus free speech and academic freedom. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast. This has been a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance, or the AFA. We are a coalition of hundreds of faculty from a range of backgrounds and ideologies who are committed to defending the free speech rights of professors at colleges and universities. You can learn more about our organization at our website, academicfreedom.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Academic Freedom Podcast.